Request for Startups is a show with tech insiders about products and companies that should exist but haven't yet. Listen first, then build. Ashay, welcome to Request for Startups. Thanks for joining Sean and I. We've been talking about this podcast for almost years, it feels like. I discovered you when you were back in college and you were writing these requests for startups. Uh, and I, I was just amazed at the, the, the you know, the, the quality of the ideas from, from a college student. And, and there were times, it seems, in your career where you've kind of got more excited about thinking about startup ideas as an investor and, and maybe got less excited. I'm, I'm curious if you can kind of reflect on how you've thought about almost the request for startups exercise uh, as an investor um, and, and what, what that's contributed to your, uh, to your investing. Yeah, I so I started doing these um, my junior year of college. Uh, it was sort of the back half of 2017 originally. Um, and honestly, I was just hearing a bunch of things and talking to a bunch of people and, you know, actually in college. And, and so I just started putting these out in the universe. And, and actually, it was a great way to meet people. And I, you know, I ended up, you know, meeting a few people through it, um, kind of met a few companies to invest in. I actually was an angel early on. Um, and then I joined, uh, you know, venture fund called Haystack in 2019 as a full-time investor. And, um, you know, I think I've had to, you know, we can talk about this a little bit more, but I think my approach or my tact has sort of changed a little bit from be, you know, prior to being investor to, to sort of post being an investor. Yeah. Can you unpack, unpack that evolution a bit? What's changed post investor? Yeah, like there was, you know, candidly, there was probably like less pressure around it when i was just in college like i felt like i could write originally and, and no one was really watching uh or sort of paying attention and so i actually felt like this kind of like very freeing sort of feeling where i was like okay i can just kind of write anything and like i i don't i'm not afraid to sort of look stupid um and in in many ways i was very generative and very creative time um i think as an investor you know i, I still want to sort of approach it and think through how to do it. And I've had, probably had different frames on it over time, but there's a little bit more pressure associated with it. Right. And then it's like, Hey, are you explicitly looking for this idea yeah. for an investment or, or what's the real mode? Um, so I've been, again, I, it's been four years now that I've been a full-time VC and I, I don't know if I have a perfect uh, approach to it these days. I like the, the way I've thought about it too, is like, could I, um, basically write these things to sort of meet people or to sort of produce some sort of top of the funnel or honestly like put something out in the world and then use that as surface area to like learn more effectively yeah, totally when you look back at your the request for startup exercises you did over the years do you do you look at those ideas and say oh wow th those turned into big companies i was really onto something do you say oh you know they were wrong or you know or it was obvious or how, how do you kind of reflect on um, and then, and then I want to ask about some of the frameworks that you use to to think through these ideas because you were kind of set on like transporting some ideas from certain space industry to another industry. Like you were very clever about that. Yeah, yeah. I think the. I mean, I mostly look back and feel stupid. Uh, <laughs> but I don't. Uh, I wouldn't take that back at all. Um, I think there probably have been some things that have panned out. Like I think I was talking a lot about different verticals and, and how financial services would sort of enter them. Like vertical banking solutions. And then that's kind of happened within different vertical SaaS companies effectively. So I don't know, um, you know, if all of it's panned out, but some of it might have been. And then, but overall, I still feel a little dumb in retrospect. 
if, if you had to identify common frameworks that tend to drive your uh, your idea making, you know, uh, process yeah. for for what could be a, a venture scale idea, w what's one or two that come to mind? One is definitely if I find a sort of I've been thinking about how to sort of articulate this, but a unique kind of business model or sort of like product form where it's applied in one industry and it's like, how can that be used in other industries? So like the one I've been thinking about right now, for example, is like Datadog and sort of cloud infrastructure, server infrastructure in terms of like, hey, this is a way to monitor your what's going on in your infrastructure, right? Like how can Datadog as an analogy be used in other spaces, manufacturing, life sciences, Etc. So I think that tends to be my frame. It's just like, you know, I think the X for Y thing sort of gets a bad rap at different times. Um, but actually, I, I do like it quite a bit. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Let, let's um let's go through uh, go into some of your some of your ideas. Um, the, the first I want to get into is is one that Sean has some familiarity with, which is the the better trade schools. Um, yeah. So why do you get excited about this idea, and why do you think it has venture potential? I think the thing that I've been thinking about, and, and I know we've sort of chatted about this briefly before, is like this sort of industrialization or like reindustrialization, uh, you know, of, of the United States and onshoring a lot of kind of trades and manufacturing back into the country. Um, and I think as that started to happen, there is a labor shortage of skilled workers in different areas, like outside of kind of blue collar knowledge worker areas. Um, and so that's, it's more like this kind of macro demand side problem that I've thought about. Um, and again, I, I, there's probably a few different models for what new tri types of trade schools look like or what upskilling looks like, for example. Um, but that's, that's kind of what's interested me on that front. Yeah. Totally. The, um, the, and you mentioned, or we're talking about like a couple of different approaches. Uh, the the multiverse model, the, the the in terms of partnering with existing businesses uh, yeah. to to pay you for curriculum and then get upskilled workforce. The Shopify model in terms of can you help people start up new trade schools, and then the Glassdoor model, which is can you get better data on on, on those trade schools? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I can explain those if, if that's helpful. Um, and and again, I was just kind of riffing on. Okay, the 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 broader idea is like we need to sort of find ways to upskill people to sort of fill either labor shortages or like, you know, put, put uh, you know, technical skills in people's hands. Um, and then one existing mode of that has been like trade schools in the United States. But what are other ways you can sort of like play around with that idea? Uh, Multiverse is a company I've found interesting that's in mostly in the UK, actually. And so they partner with employers, um, to basically like help them staff up apprentices who can then become full-time employees. So it's just kind of like upskilling marketplace, like it taps into these big corporate learning and development budgets. It taps into their sort of like HR, you know, recruiting budgets. Um, you know, what does that look like for manufacturing facilities for different kinds of, uh, you know, skilled labor, uh, you know, types of businesses? One of the things in the multiverse business that I think is interesting is that yeah. it's, it's, it's actually a regulatory capture business. Mm. The reason it exists is because there's a law in the United Kingdom that makes businesses above a certain scale forced to invest in apprenticeship programs, 
or yeah. pay some huge fine. And so, of course, they opt to to invest in the apprenticeship program. And so it's interesting because Multiverse comes in and just runs those programs for them. Um, and there's a huge tax incentive for them to do that. They have basically like the, the companies have to put aside a bunch of money and, and then Multiverse just takes most of that money. And I think they recently expanded into the United States on the back of a similar type of legislation being passed in some subsectors. And so that's an interesting business, though I'm, I'm, I'd be um, very hesitant to attempt to replicate it without the similar sort of like government backing mm. to, to actually enable it and force the businesses to do it. Yeah. Do you find that, you know, there's probably like it, it is it because sean like the investment that a company is looking at in terms of like having to sort of train an apprentice to then potentially hire them, like that cost is just too high almost equal they they simply won't do it uh, it's a, yeah. it's an investment that they can't recoup the the gains are all socialized the costs are all internalized and so the only reason they're doing it is because they're forced to um there's Got a benefit it. to them which is they get to do some pr around it uh there's like a, a sort of uh, brand lift that it makes it look like they're doing something good, but really their, their hand is forced. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm curious, like just from your experience, like what you've seen or you know, thought about, um, kind of on the trade school element, especially like the sort of non, uh, blue collar, like non knowledge work side of things. Well, there's been a few different models. Some of them have attempted to use community colleges as the, the sort of uh, training vector and and use that already large investment that governments have made into like repurposing that infrastructure, the teachers, the the campuses, et cetera. Those need to be profitable for the community college though, because oftentimes the jobs that they're training people for wind up facilitating additional brain drain. So that's challenging, right? Because yeah. these community colleges are ostensibly to build more jobs and, you know, sort of uh, capacity within their local economy. But then the jobs that people actually wind up getting are, are remote and don't don't benefit the the local ecosystem. So they have to be profitable immediately. I think some of the ISA things didn't quite work largely due to counterparty risk. You know, we we thought, what if we put all of the onus on the businesses or the the educator to help people get better jobs and actually deliver the outcomes that they claim to be able to produce? But it turns out that most of the dimensions of success are actually in the uh, the, the learner's hands, right? Most of the, the ways in yeah. which somebody fails um, are actually only within control of the, the learner. So those programs wind up not being profitable. But I do think that there's tons of new opportunities to, to unbundle higher ed and, and not require higher ed to, to be the, the, the primary solution. I think on-the-job learning is probably one of the big opportunities yeah. is can you create jobs where the first job doesn't require you know, the first tasks don't require too much education and you, you progressively scale people up. That feels like a, an effective uh, solution. Yeah. Uh, Sean, I'm curious if we can go a bit deeper here. Why don't you share the, a little bit of the DMAs you navigated with placement over the past few years and maybe talk about some of the, the hypotheses you had, some of the things that didn't work, some of the things that did work. And if you were starting it again from scratch today, you know, where you might be spending more, more time in terms of hypotheses. Well, the, the, the brief history is that in 2019, the pre-COVID days, I started placement, which was relocating people around the country for better economic opportunity. We financed the relocation as well as some job search coaching for people to basically get them ready to go and move. 
And then we move them to economies where the cost of living adjusted wages for their existing skill set would result in uh, uh, an increase in their sort of actual lifestyle, right? So cost of living adjusted wages. Um, and we finance this with an ISA. So they only paid us when it worked. There's a lot of things that I, I don't want to make this into an ISA session. There's a lot of things we could talk about <laughs> yeah, with, yeah. with ISAs. I think the, the trade school stuff is interesting. We, we didn't do reskilling um, because we were trying to, to basically close geographic arbitrages. But the thing that actually ultimately closed that was remote work and COVID uh, that reshuffled the, the whole landscape. So, so ultimately, the, the thing that we were pursuing was wrong. But in that exploration, there was a lot of industrial businesses that I was talking to, particularly in the uh, manufacturing space that wanted yeah. additional work, you know, people to get trained up in, in that area. Um, but it's kind of a, an interesting intersection. It's like this intersection between people that want to work in a mach machine shop, but also want to write code and feel like they are intellectually the type of person that can write code. And I was skeptical that that was a particularly large pool of the population, but maybe with GPT enabled tools, you know, the code that they're writing can be more, you know, verbalized as opposed to, to typed and that, that might actually wind up unlocking a new opportunity there. We don't want to get the, the whole um, episode of ISAs, but give me two minutes because you had this amazing thread um, kind of saying here, here are some of the challenges with it. And I, I want you to just unpack it because ISAs have attracted so many people, people like us, uh, because just intellectually there's, you know, if you can, better align incentives, there's, uh, it seems like, you know, you could reshape a lot of industries that way. Um, what do you see as, are, are you now kind of officially like bearish on, on most ISA related applications? What could you be bullish about? Why don't you just unpack that thread a bit and then we'll, we'll move on to another topic. I'd say that there's three core core criticisms, right? Uh, there's there's probably 10, but I'll give you three. So the first one is that the number of, you, you basically have to think about what are the ways in which this thing can fail? When you're talking about educating somebody, the biggest way that it can fail is the person simply gives up. And the bigger the gains and the harder the process, the more likely it is that they simply give up. And that's what happens with a lot of these ISA programs. So then you start to see sort of like downside protection or you start to see like first deposits where you lose your deposit if you don't uh, wind up finishing the program or you wind up with a thing where it's like, well, if you quit, you have to pay the full tuition. These are the solutions that people have put on that. But now you've taken what was ostensibly an incredibly uh, learner-aligned model and made it actually very painful. Um, and in the case that it work that it doesn't work, it is exactly like debt. You still owe all of the fees, and so you haven't actually changed the incentive model. So if you if you're actually attempting to to shift the incentive model, um, you you're going to ideally avoid that. The other thing is that thing that that happens is people just think things happen. Right. Like it's, you know, some people aren't necessarily capable of addressing uh, or learning all of the skills um, on the timelines that the boot camp or the, the school requires. And so the way that that often you see this solve for is you just have extremely selective filtering at the top of funnel. Uh, but it, then you're not really doing the democratized thing that you thought you were doing in the first place. Right. Like most of the, the coding boot camps that worked, the cohorts that worked had a bunch of, uh, you know, bachelors in physics and math go through it. And then when they start to scale those things, they wind up getting people that like have no bachelors or they have like an English degree or something. And the success is just different there because those people don't actually have the same base skills. So, so scaling those things up is really hard. Um, so those are the, some of the challenges there. I think one of the other things is that because of the failure rates or whatever, you actually have to have a, you have to really exploit the people that it works for. Like you have the sort of superstar mm. um, problem. You have, you have debt-like returns with, with equity-like downside. So there's a high probability yeah. your investment goes to zero, but there's there's no like non-linear 
payoff. And so really when it does work, you have to extract a lot from those people uh, because those people have to pay for all of the people that failed. Um, and so then the people that ideally are your biggest super fans are actually pretty upset that they're paying you so much money because when it works, they feel like they could have done it without you. And the fees that they would have had to pay without you would have been just the cost of their own education as opposed to subsidizing all the failures too. And then the third thing is that there's... And this is this was a hard learned lesson is that the way that people perceive your brand changes based on how recently you've delivered value to them relative to how recently they've paid you money. And so when somebody pays you upfront for something and then you deliver value later, like think about this with a concert ticket. You buy a concert ticket 6 months ago. When you go to the concert, you you have just the the cost, the pain incurred of spending that money has decayed and the concert feels free. It's just like exciting, like you don't think about the money. The opposite is not the case with that with with ISAs. All of the value is delivered up front and the experience of that decays over time and then you start spending more and more and more and more money as you succeed and you forget all of the good things and all you feel is the pain. And so you wind up having people really really hate you. Uh, your success cases wind up hating you more and more and more as they pay you farther and farther and farther away from the actual educational activity. Like just think about this, the the, the final piece I'll say on this, the when you think about college education it's the case that university endowments are some of the biggest LPs in financial activities, yet they don't write their own student loans. Why? They want a bank to write the student loans, so you hate the bank's brand, and yeah. you continue to donate money to them, even though they could finance it. They Surely they could. They're, they're the LPs that are doing this stuff. Maybe they are technically financing it, like three degrees of separation. But a lot of the, the boot camps tried to sort of take the, the sort of um, keep their brand on that payment activity, and it was just not good. Yeah, you're, you're talking about the Taylor Swift problem, where you, you, your success stories uh, you know, start to want to recoup or turn uh, turn your their audience against you. A hundred percent. Yeah, and the the legal stuff on ISAs is also not well uh, lubricated. Um, like debt, small claims court is easy. You just go, you get the debt, it's secured. But ISAs, it's like it's it's not nearly as from a legal standpoint and a legal infrastructure standpoint, it's not on rails. So like, can you recoup that money? It's like maybe, uh, possibly. So, so a decade from now, do you think we'll kind of be in a pretty similar situation where it's like a attractive idea, but you know, hard to, hard, it's a nerd trap basically. Um, yes. or do you think something will change? Got it. No, I, I don't think that it works. I think that it, it, to the extent that it plays a role, it plays a small role. I don't think it goes to zero, yeah. but I think it, it, it plays like a very minor, minor role in, in educational financing. So you're saying you're bullish on personal tokens and NFTs. Oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm bullish on AI tutors that reduce the cost to nothing. Yeah. Yeah. It, cool. It's funny too, like, because a lot of the, a lot of the, the sort of boot camps from what I remember in 2018, 20, like there's a lot of high operating costs to sort of, you know, it's not like a venture, a pure software business, right? Um, and so you're beholden a little bit to like the gravity of that business model. And like a lot of them would also not only do the programming and the curriculum, but also turn the hiring and the recruiting. It's like all of a sudden it's like a services business without tech involved. Yeah, it is. It is. It's a services business. Like when you're training yeah. people, at least up till to up to today, up to today, it's been a services business. There hasn't been a way to break out of that. And at the point that you become a software business, you're Udemy, and you can't get you can't extract any fees. Like when you become a content business, people stop paying real money. Like what they're paying for is pedagogy, like that actual like one on one thing. And so when you attempt to scale that, people's willingness to pay like falls off a cliff. Yeah. Um. 
I want to segue into some of your other ideas, Ashay. So let, let's start actually with the analogy companies. You mentioned Datadog for X. Why don't we go through some of the some of the analogy companies and, and where you see uh, you know those analogies like potentially taking shape? Yeah, I think there's probably like a couple, and I think they're probably a little bit more technical. So you know, I think the ones that come to mind are probably Datadog for X, uh, maybe Replit for X. Uh, you know, potentially sort of GitHub, um, but let's kind of talk through it. So Datadog, right? So what does Datadog do at its core? Basically it takes, you know, logs, metrics, you know, traces um, bits of information that come from any company running software at scale and, and give you a picture of that software, right? Either, you know, the historical picture or sort of a real-time picture to understand really what's going on. So you can troubleshoot outages, you can troubleshoot, you know, incidents, you know, all these kind of bad things that sort of go wrong. Um, and effectively, it's collecting a lot of machine data. Um, and so, I, I don't know, I've been trying to think through, like, what are sort of other, you know, quote-unquote arenas or domains where that's starting to happen, and you're getting more data sort of emitting from different sensor types. Um, and so, one, I've been thinking through, I guess, two, I've been sort of thinking through, and there have been a couple of companies that have tried these. One is sort of the lab. Let's sort of the biology wet lab, and the other is you know manufacturing facilities. Um, and so, can you basically capture um, event information coming from the different instruments, the sort of heterogeneous instruments inside of these different um, sites, and then you know actually have like a sort of single pane of glass. Um, experience for whoever's operating it. Do you think that that wind, winds up largely being an integration challenge? Like what's, what makes this, uh, what, what are the big sort of impediments to somebody doing this? Like what, what's Datadog's secret sauce here? I think they, um, it's a good question. Like they started off with, I believe an agent just running in a company server or a different type of sort of, so they started with a, a small and they weren't trying to boil the ocean from day one. Um, and then they sort of expanded from there. Once they had the footprint into one sort of device or one uh, kind of container, they were like, you know, how can we expand this over time? Um, the impediments I see are probably, um, yes, this integration thing, like how do you actually capture, how do you actually get the real-time data from the different instruments, uh, you know, without having to physically go to every site? And two, it's like, you know, how close off are the end? If you're uh, Illumina and you have all these scanners or sequencers in, inside of all these different labs, like how willing to give up this data are you basically? Let's, um, let's go through the Replit for X example. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I've been interested as, in, in Replit as a company, right? Because, you know, versions of what they're doing have kind of been around, you know, potentially for some time, right? Like a coding environment, uh, you know, actually being able to push your code to, to production in some capacity. Like they had these IDs or like ways to code and stuff like that. But like, what did Replic get right? And I think my hypothesis is a couple of things. Like, I mean, besides the UI and stuff like that, it's like they try to make it more approachable for students. Um, and like on the, the sort of, I don't know if you call it like the lower end of the market, right? But like, how do you, if you're starting to learn how to program, not if you're an experienced programmer already, where do you start? Right? Like, and, and I think like my friend Peter Zakin, 
he wrote this thing called like fishing upstream, which is like basically how do you capture a sort of professional or skilled worker before they even start? Like, and, and the example he used was um, YC, like YC sort of, you know, Paul Graham's essays, like fish entrepreneurs upstream effectively. Um, and so Replit, he argues, it's like it catches a student before they even learn how to program or like when they're learning how to program. Um, and then the, the sort of business idea is like, can you sort of grow up learning the program on Replit? Um, there's other parts of the product that make it more interactive, experiential. How do you like bring in other people? How do you make it collaborative? Like now there's all these AI elements to it. Um, and so what I liked was like, are there other domains like besides programming, writing a software application that runs in production or building a web application? Are there other things where you can like draw that analogy out to, right? There's so some, uh, you go ahead, Sean. Well, I say there's some interesting like prior art here as well. When you think about that yeah. fishing upstream idea, and I, I don't know Replit super well, so maybe there's there's stuff that you sort of um, age into it. But things like Photoshop or AutoCAD, these companies played a, a long-term game of giving free licenses to students to basically establish a skill base in the economy of people that know how to use their tools. And so that when people yeah. graduate, they flock towards jobs that are good with the skills that they actually have. Office is the other really good example. Like there's a big war between Google and, and Microsoft as to which universities they they nab on their respective ecosystems. And it sounds like Replit's doing that for programming. And I mean, I've been writing software for 20 years and there was no IDEs that were explicitly recommended and so it's interesting that Replit's sort of uh, sort of winning in that space for the first time, perhaps. I I, I think like auto, I had, I hadn't even known about that this had been part of like the OG Autodesk and Adobe like playbook basically. Like I think it was the eighties when both of those companies were started in some capacity, and they're like for academics. And Replit is another sort of recent example. Um, Benchling is another example where I don't know how explicit this was, but they basically started as a free um, lab notebook for scientists, wet lab scientists, mostly at MIT and the Broad Institute in, in Cambridge. Um, and then they started as a free lab notebook for, for the, the lab scientists. Um, those lab scientists, you know, use Benchling. They started working at different biotech companies. They would bring Benchling to the biotech companies. The biotech companies would get Acquired by biopharma companies, then all of a sudden you can you have all these people instead of hmm. Eli Lilly or Pfizer Roche using Benchling, and then it's like, hey, this contract is much easier to sell now. And so I don't know where else it's happening, but it's a sort of interesting kind of software playbook. Yeah, there's something here that I'd like your guys' opinion on that I've thought a lot about, which is what it feels like to grow up with the development of a particular tool. Uh, versus what it's like to come in at a late mature stage of a tool. So for example, I started using Adobe Photoshop in, it must've been like 2002 or something like that, like 2003, yeah. like, a, like a really, really long time ago. And the tools then in Photoshop were pretty simple. And then every year Photoshop got more advanced and more powerful and there was more features. And I got the privilege of being able to, you know, iteratively learn it. Every Every incremental feature was pretty easy to learn. Now, recently, I've gone through the same experience with Figma, right? I started using Figma like the year it was launched uh, with the collaborative features. And now it's like a very advanced piece of software. And there's something really interesting to think about, you know, how you have these waves of tools 
that when they first start are really catered to, to being a simple experience, to dumbing it down. Um, and therefore it's very attractive to, to new people learning that skill. But then every year they get more complicated and more feature packed as the, their users demand greater and greater power. And eventually it sort of comes full circle. They're now as bloated and overwhelming as, as the previous tools. And I just wonder if there's a way to like think about software maturity and, and think about the sort of disruptability of a company based on how hard is it? How steep is that first learning curve? Like you look at the UI and your brain explodes. Like you open up Illustrator and you're like, ah, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, also to your point around Photoshop or Figma, now I think Figma has become this sort of like, you know, catch-all tool for, you know, sort of design broadly. But when it first started, it was really just for UI design, which was actually underserved by Adobe. And it's like, I, I think the other question too is like, is there a way to avoid that life cycle as a software company, right? You start off, you're doing this very simple thing. You solve a simple pain point for, you know, an individual user, an academic but then you, you, know, you raise venture funding and you start to organically spread. And then it's like, oh, we need to do, build all these enterprise features to like actually make money. Um, like, is there a way to like fight that gravity? Or okay, here's is that a, just like the natural life cycle literally every single software company? Here, here's a crazy idea. We now yeah. have the ability to interpret natural language queries. Imagine that you get into a tool and the very first UI when you first load it up is just like dead simple, right? It has just the minimum things that most people need right when you first start using a tool. And then, you know, every app has command K, the command you could just search and yeah. search, search for anything. What if every app starts to enable you to ask, how do I do X in this app? And when you ask the right question, it's like, boom, skill unlock. There's this new icon in your toolbar. It wasn't there before because it would have overwhelmed mm. you. But now that you need it, all of a sudden it's there. And we have adaptive software. Like imagine if Photoshop started off with like just like a paint bucket tool and like a pen tool. Like, oh, it's so simple. And then every every time you start asking it, can I do X? The answer is yes, it can now that you asked. Yeah, because it's like you have to sort of start somewhere in that sort of user journey to kind of keep like you can't, you know, throw all throw the kitchen sink at the user from the get-go. But I, I mean, I think, again, like, I think the tech is not quite there, but I do believe probably in this, like, personalized software future um, where, you know, these tools sort of, like, adapt to the one-off user, the one-off organization over time. Like, I think the back-end machine learning will get there and sort of you have this, like, generative UI, generative kind of software paradigm. I mean, consumer software kind of works this way right now. Like, TikTok... Each person's TikTok feed is personalized to them. Uh, obviously, there isn't like a rich sort of feature set, but like, what does that look like for tools? If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like there's something there. Not a direct startup, but there's something interesting in terms yeah, yeah, of yeah, UI yeah. paradigm. It's, like, it's probably, it's, I, I feel like it's directionally the way a lot of software will go, right? Like from the, yeah. but yeah. I, uh, I want to segue into your GitHub for X um, ideas. What, by, by that, do you mean kind of like verticalize LinkedIn's or, or kind of Behance, you know, where you professional networks where you could show your, your, your work? Or do you mean something more broadly? I think kind of all of the above. <laughs> like, uh, it's like one place to, it's like, I, I actually, let me see. I had like a tweet that was like, what sure. is GitHub? Uh, and it was like, So there's like, it's okay. So it's like, you're trying to build. So I said, you know, what is GitHub? It's like, it's a unique kind of identi identity system 
for a user in a certain domain. So in GitHub, it's like coding. In Hugging Face, it's machine learning. Um, it's like a reputation system and it's a proof of work system, right? It's like, I push this code, it's attached to my identity. It shows you that I've done something within this sort of universe. Um, and then it's like, there's this some sort of atomic unit that it's all centered around. So again, GitHub, it's the code repository, Hugging Face, like the, the model or the, the data set. Um, and so it's like, it's kind of like all of the above in this like weird way. Uh, but yeah. Ashay, do you know and anything are, about... What, what other areas? I was, I was going to ask, do you know anything about Hugging Face? Like how did that... It feels like they came out of nowhere. Do you know how that, uh, how that worked? Like is there something we can I mean, learn about that? It's a <laughs> It started off as a... I think it... it I don't know the exact origin story um, in this probably period of in that company from like 2017 to 2020, which I think is like the period to sort of learn uh, about Hugging Face. Like it started off as a chatbot company that was out of Betaworks that was, I think, like a consumer sort of you know, NLP-centric chatbot. Um, I did not actually know like how they sort of made that turn into, hey, we're going to be a tool for NLP in a place to host models, a place to host data sets. Um, like, if, if I had to guess, it feels like they sort of were building a lot of infrastructure for themselves, you know, while they're building out this chatbot, this NLP sort of centric experience. And then, you know, they kind of released something in the open. How that went into like more of a community or this more like social network type thing it is today. That I do not know, but I, I do think it's an interesting question. I wonder if there's something similar that we could do in finance, right? How do we, like, is, why is there no GitHub for corporate valuation models? Like, if someone says Apple's undervalued, like, give me the, give me the data, give me the model. Yeah, yeah. But it, it's also, it's, it's funny because, like, I feel like this exists in this sort of, like, emergent behavior on, like, FinTwit a little bit. Where you have like a nons and they have, you know, and then they're sort of sharing models and stuff like that. But nothing where there's like a dedicated sort of software experience around it. Yeah, that's really interesting. Do, uh, Sean, you mentioned finance. Are there any other uh, examples of, of industries that could be show your work, uh, you know, involve a show your work component that haven't been kind of aggregated into this, you know, network like GitHub has? I think Figma's trying to do it with design stuff. The community there is it's nation, but it's it's pretty good. Like increasingly, you can find anything you'd like there. Um, I I don't know if they've incorporated billing yet, but that also is is kind of interesting as well. But yeah, I mean, like should open source eat everything? Like open source is definitely eaten software. Like could it eat? Could it eat finance? Could it eat? I don't know what else. What else is like that? Data centric, collaborative updates over time, pluggable. That's interesting. Um, speaking of open source, let, let's talk about, let's move into AI because actually I, I know you thought a bit about AI and open source, and, um, you also thought about, uh, you have, or you have this idea around native intelligence and business applications. So why don't we go into, into all that? Yeah, I think the AI and open source piece, um, I mean, there've been a bunch of things published recently. Like I probably believe in the worldview where you have a couple, um, oligopolistic foundation model providers, right? That are spending a lot of money on compute or building these kind of large language models. And, and, and that probably is like OpenAI, Microsoft, 
uh, Google, Anthropic. Yeah, it's it's kind of like these. They're just spending a lot on on compute and building these large models. And then you probably have um, like there's that paper that just went around. That was like I think Google has no moat, and neither does OpenAI. And I think that was the name that like. If you look at the benchmarks of models that get large language models that get published, it feels like the delta between that and an equivalent open source model that gets released with similar benchmarks, like that delta is shrinking, that sort of like time to open source, if that makes sense. Um, and so you'll probably have this like on one end of the spectrum, these large language models, like a couple of these, these sort of like cloud-like providers, and then this like huge array of like these open source models that are lighter weight, that maybe are similar in performance, but not quite there, that are maybe domain specific. And I think the the mental frame I like this is from Ahmad at Stability, that's like scale versus swarm. Uh, you just have this like swarm of open source models. Um, in terms of like what that actually does, especially this like morass of, of open source models, uh, I don't know. <laughs> like, I actually think it's, it's kind of the interesting thing of like, it, you probably see a lot of emergent behavior come out of that and, and companies, developers use them in interesting ways. Companies use them to sort of fine tune on their own data sets in interesting ways. Pri privacy, this is sort of a big, another element of this. Um, and then in terms of like the business applications and, and how does intelligence look? Like the thing I've been thinking about is when mobile came out, um, there were obviously web applications that got repurposed to mobile and mobile UIs and, you know, specific to the iPhone. Um, but then there's also this whole suite of new native kind of iOS applications. And over time, they started to, you know, develop um, UI, UX paradigms that were very highly specific to like working with software, like in your phone. Um, like the, the example I think about is that company Mailbox that started in, I think, 2012 or 2013. And it was just like a beautiful, dedicated mobile experience, right? Like, and it used all the sort of mobile gestures around tapping and swiping and pinching and zooming. And, um, and, and now, you know, I don't know how exactly to define AI and LLMs as like a platform shift, so to speak. What does the email inbox client look like? What does a calendar look like? Like, I don't know, it, it, it feels like you can start to stress this out in different ways. And how are you, how are you thinking about investable theses here, right? Like if somebody came to you and said, I'm, I'm building a better foundation model, are you interested in that? Or like, like, how do you think about what role incumbents play in this new ecosystem versus previous sort of tech revolutions? I think there are, in terms of venture backing for new foundation model companies, especially at the compute scale and intensity, it's, I think it's tough for smaller funds. I think there are larger funds that can participate in that and like have the type of capital. And, and you could even argue, is that venture capital, right? Like what is the type of capital that's going after just, you know, large compute? Um, I don't actually know how many more of those will continue to exist. Like maybe we're starting to crystallize like who those players are and they'll just continue to raise, you know, different tranches of capital. Um, there actually probably isn't enough uh, you know, how, how should I think about saying this? Like all those companies, like the Microsofts, the OpenAIs, like they've now, I think, coalesced on um, resources and uh, 
you know, their attention has gone around like transformers, large language models, and other parts of like AI ML or developing new models or new model architectures, I actually think are somewhat underserved. Like reinforcement learning uh, is kind of this thing that like Facebook had, you know, spent a lot of time thinking through. And like now, you know, there's less resources for that org. So maybe new companies that are actually almost like research-like companies um, developing new models around areas that are somewhat underserved by the, the sort of incumbent type players. So maybe that's one area. One of the things that, that what you just said about is it even venture capital made me think about is I wonder what the industry curve here looks like for AI. So in previous, like, like does, does AI look like, do AI tools look like software or do they look like hardware? For example, in the chips business, the, the companies that make all the profit are really at the tip of the spear. So it's, yeah. you have to have the, the most advanced chip. Uh, or like, you know, one, two, three generations of advancement in chips to, to make any money at all. And then behind that, it's just rapidly commoditized. And that rapid commoditization produces insane consumer surplus, right? We have yeah, like yeah. fractional penny chips in, in everything because of that commoditization, which is, which is really good for the sort of downstream businesses. But if you're at that upstream business, it's like you basically are in this innovation uh, hamster wheel where you're constantly running, trying to, to be ahead of the next guy so that you can get that tip of the spear uh, profit. And then otherwise, you know, you got to be a, you, you want to be in the use cases business. You want to be uh, Microsoft, not not uh, not Dell. Yeah. Yeah. I think the I mean, because, yeah, what's, you know, in the mod, if you if you look at it from the model perspective, like what's the ultimate sort of surplus type tool. It's an open source tool, right? <laughs> like that's just, that's effectively, you know, free sort of consumer user surplus. Um, I do think this industry structure thing is like one of the, the questions in AI, like where does the value start to accrue? Um, and it, it's tied in with like defensibility maybe. Um, and it feels like that's what everyone is trying to like ask or solve for, you know, right now. I want to segue into um, healthcare. Um, I, I know, Asha, you've thought a bit about healthcare data as infrastructure. And so maybe you could unpack that, that hypothesis for opportunity. There exists probably a set of companies that are effectively like manually in like large scale data integration uh, operation type businesses that are like manually pulling tons of patient information um, just to, to sort of like collect it, right? So like you get, you know, this company Komodo Health, I think they have like, 300 million plus like patient lives, meaning they have like the claims data on like 300 million plus patients in terms. So this is like massive data set on like healthcare in the United States on like a per patient level. And some of it is just basic, like what operation did this person come in? Like, how is it? But then like, there's just also these like higher dimension, higher dimensional, like narrower data sets that like go very deep on each specific patient. Um, and so you have these both the increasing number of high quality data sets and also these like higher quantity data sets basically on like healthcare in the United States. Um, and how as that like continues to happen, you have all these different sort of providers. How does that serve as infrastructure for new types of applications? Um, mostly for like biotech companies or life sciences companies to develop new drugs. Uh, develop new therapies. Um, it's a, so it's it's an idea I've been kind of like playing around with or, or thinking about. Um, 
don't know if you know you guys have, have seen anything or, or have any thoughts. There's, what, how do you think about sort of confidentiality in these worlds? Like, I, I feel like this yeah. has been the, the hard part is the laws Crypto. around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, or maybe we train LLMs. Uh, there, yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think that's like, if you talk to people, like that's the biggest sort of like, uh, you know, hurdle. Um, there are probably ways from a product perspective to sort of make it happen or to sort of encrypt data in, in different ways. Um, I mean, there's, there's, you know, like even the differential machine learning stuff, it's like, how can you train a model when the model doesn't know what it's sort of being trained on, if that makes sense? Like it's, it's sort of math I don't fully understand. Um, but I think it's a solvable problem. And, and I also like, I'm, you know, maybe healthcare data is, uh, I don't know if this is controversial. Healthcare data might be different, but like, it's sort of unclear how much like consumers care about privacy. Uh, maybe that changes sort of going forward. Um, but that's something I've been maybe a thought. My like personal feeling on this is that when the, you feel like the world is, you know, an ocean of data and you're just yeah. a single drop of water that no one will ever notice, who cares? But when all of a sudden there's tools for sifting through that ocean very efficiently, you start yeah. to think twice about what, what, what drops are in that ocean. Yeah. I, I think like it, it is the, you know, the type of thing where it's just like, Especially as um, drug discovery, let's let's talk about drug discovery specifically. That becomes a more computational activity of like, how do you find different compounds, and how do you, you know, a, a person's biology map to like their health outcomes? Like, there, this data I think is valuable in that research in some way, and so it's just sort of a little bit of like a coordination problem of like, how do you get it from from source to sort of sync? That makes sense. Um, one of the ideas that, that in your, that, that you mentioned, um, was like, how do you virtualize the creation of the biotech company itself? That, that just yeah. like, it's a, it's a very punchy, uh, question. Can you, can you unpack yeah. that? Yeah, I think so. I was, I was literally, I was trying to map out, like, I, I'm trying to find it. Um, so like, I, I actually, I literally asked chat GPT, I was like, what are the steps to sort of like form and create a biotech company? Um, and so I was thinking through like what, which of those steps do you actually need physical infrastructure and space for? And which could be done like in your laptop, on your laptop effectively. Um, I think the things that I thought, you know, you, you might actually not need physical infrastructure for. There is one company called Vile. That is, it's like, yeah, they're like, like, it's like one of the first steps in unbundling. How do you, how do you sort of create these specialty orgs? Like, like, what would it look like to create the, the AWS of, of sort of lab research, right? On demand, you know, research or something. I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not a biotech guy, but I think it sounds, sounds cool. No, I I think it's directionally should be where things go. Cool. Let, let's let's wrap there. Uh, Ashe, this has been great. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. For people who might want to learn more about your your, your work and and Haystack uh, and maybe pursue some of these ideas, you know, where can you point them to? Yeah, I mean, feel free to reach out to me, Ashe at Haystack.vc, A A S A A S H A Y at Haystack.vc. Awesome. Uh, thanks so much for joining, Ashe. All right, guys. Thanks. 